Hi, everyone, and welcome to the News Agent podcast. I'm Susie Lysett, Senior Content Executive at Goodlord. And today we're going to be taking a look into deposits and the dispute process, aiming to demystify some of the things that agents and landlords have to contend with uh, and understand a little bit more about the process and the different scenarios that agents and landlords may face in that situation. To help me, I'm joined by another Susie, Susie Hirschman, a dispute <laughs> resolution leader at HFIS. So, first off, thank you very much for joining me today, Susie. Thank you very much for inviting me. No problem at all. It would be great if initially you'd be able to just tell us a little bit about your role, you know, who you are, what it is that you do. Okay, so an extensive 14-year background with HFIS. Um, I started with my deposits, so my background is actually adjudication. And I have progressed on to complaint handling with the property redress scheme as well. So when I'm out there educating agents and landlords, I come with two hats um, so they have the benefit of uh, lots of different experience depending on who I'm talking to. And yeah, so we're here to talk about disputes today or as I like to call it negotiation, because when I'm training, I always refer to negotiation first. Less than 2% of protected deposits ever comes to adjudication. So I think people that are listening might be surprised how small that number is. I know we like to all um, all the deposit schemes like to boast about how good they are at their jobs, but we don't deal with the, the majority of protected deposits. So most of those are dealt with by adjudic- uh, negotiation before the at the tenancy end. So all I look to do is sort of educate, give people something that they maybe haven't thought about or refresh their memory about something they might not be doing. Especially sort of the idea of it being a negotiation at the same time, it is discussion between people. So it's, uh, it, it makes is. sense. And nobody really wants to elongate the process any longer than necessary. So, Mm. you know, it's all about the evidence. The way that we will look at it is very much the process is, you know, send us your evidence. But if you're negotiating, you need to be able to, you know, have your tenancy agreement to hand, know what responsibilities lie with the tenant and which responsibilities are the landlords. Make sure that, you know, manage your own expectations and that of the tenant with regard to things like wear and tear and make sure that you have got the evidence to show as a landlord or an agent exactly what you're claiming. Mm. So you're talking about inventories, you're talking about checkout reports, you're talking about midterm reports. All of these paint a really good picture. Then you're talking about email correspondence, what discussions have happened. If there is no evidence, then be aware that your case may be weaker because of it estimates, invoices, contractors' reports, all very valuable evidence. And that's what you need just before you even look at the differences and calculate fair wear and tear before coming up with an amount. Yeah, no, it does seem that it's the key word of this really does seem to be evidence. It's uh, and obviously linking it back in with the with contracts and things and making sure that it, those responsibilities are clearly stated from the beginning. I suppose that any step anywhere in the process where you can avoid any confusion as to whose responsibility it is in different scenarios, um, it's obviously going to make it easier as it gets towards the end of the tenancy. Um, if there, if it were to, um, to to move into the the need to have negotiations um, at that later. To stage. Would you perhaps be able to touch on the, the idea of tenancy deposits and disputes and kind of how those two sort of overlap? What's the necessity for the, for the deposit in the first place? And then how, how does that move into the dispute process? Well, a deposit is taken generally to protect the landlord and the tenant's interest. So it's not just one or the other. It is both. The tenant, it gives them, it gives them a sense of if they want to get the, the deposit back, they need to look after that property. They need to be 
doing what they are, what you know, fulfilling their responsibilities. And and what is is often amazing, and and we do sometimes have to think about the age of the tenants or the experience of tenants as themselves, in themselves, in that how many of them, if you ask landlords and agents, how many of your tenants do you know read their tenancy agreements? There will not actually be too many. So that's where the negotiation point at the end of a tenancy comes becomes very valuable. Remind the tenants of what the, ten- the tenancy agreement says, and it might just be a few different points about you know tenant responsibilities but what happens then is the landlord obviously has a cushion or an amount of money obviously there is a cap now since the tenant fees act in 2019 but that little bit of money can go towards damages claims against the deposit it may be a small amount of rent that's not been paid it may be damages or cleaning so you know various different things but the landlord then has a cushion and that's right. where it then leads into the dispute side of things. You know, if if the tenant's not going to get their deposit back, what's going to happen to it? I think that's a good summary of how those two uh, how those two link up, and and it's it does make sense, obviously, for the landlord to have that bit of a cushion um, when it is their mm. property that they're renting out. But uh, again, it shows the importance of that initial contract. And as you say, if tenants aren't don't read it, then uh, <laughs> that's where perhaps some of the difficulties can perhaps lie. I mean, let's let's um, let's delve into some of these different aspects, other things perhaps that tie all of these different elements together. You have okay. already mentioned inventories. Mm-hmm. And um, I suppose that this is one of those quite important steps where you can keep track of well, the, the condition of things at the beginning. I mean, how important are inventories to the deposit and then the dispute process in terms of tracking that evidence? OK, well, obviously there are lots of different quality inventories. So a quality of an inventory is something that takes a long time to have a discussion about. But principally, if you have no inventory, that is the worst situation you want to be in. That is going to weaken any case and you're unlikely to succeed at an adjudication. The only exception to that would be if the tenant makes an admission to causing the problem and you have an invoice to show whatever you're claiming was new when the tenancy started. So it might be a refurb on uh, decoration, it might be a new washing machine, whatever it might be. So they would probably be your only two exceptions. So you can understand how a good inventory is going to start you off as you mean to go on. It needs to be really well detailed. It needs to differentiate between cleaning and quality condition because they are two very different things. So again, that is that's a very in-depth discussion. I'm not sure how how deep you want to go at this point? Well, I think an overview in terms of the cleaning and quality that we can give, or perhaps it may factor into some of the other things that we'll we'll come in to discuss. In terms of the inventory, the detail that could be required, photographic evidence would obviously be the ideal at each stage, although you can't take pictures of every square inch of a property. Whose responsibility would you say that that is um, at the beginning? Would you say, is it the landlord um, agent to take those photos and say to the to the tenant, are these accurate or would it be up to the tenant to keep that form of evidence in case there were an issue? That's a very good question, actually, because you often get landlords or agents will take some pictures. If they're not embedded in the report, then from an adjudication perspective, we need to be able to see that the tenant has sight of them because historically we've had photos in the past that have been separate to an inventory that have not ended up being the tenant's property, which is sounds a bit shocking and it is obviously very rare, but it does happen. So we always need to be able to verify the evidence. So we're always looking for an inventory that embeds those reports. Not only does it prove that the tenant 
Uh, and then obviously the fact that the tenant has had a copy sent to them, that will verify the date they were taken. And the tenant then has an opportunity to accept or amend that report. So if they don't like the photos at the time, then that's that's the ideal situation. And to be fair, I think most people now understand that an inventory at the beginning is so important. We as adjudicators tend to prefer the written word. So in, in conjunction with photos, because photos don't always tell the whole story. As you said, you can't photograph every inch. So if you've got something in writing to support it, especially any mark, damage, lack of cleanliness, whatever it might be, it solidifies that point. And then I, I guess that almost the next step in the process, it, once you've had, once you've taken that snapshot with an inventory of the condition of, of the property at that moment in time, obviously a tenant goes in and lives in that property for a while. What then constitutes fair wear and tear? I mean, is there an easy way to define oh, this or is it very much a case by case basis? It's always a case by case basis. But when we have very poor evidence, or whether we have really good evidence, we start with, we have five basic criteria that we break it down to. So we look at the age of the item or area. Do we know how long it's been since it was redecorated? Do we know how old the fridge was when the tenant moved in? And very often we don't have that invoice, which does sometimes baffle us especially when it doesn't look that new when the landlord's claiming for a new one. We will look at the quality. Again, with appliances, there isn't always a name visible in the inventory photo. And sometimes, and it's often not recorded as the make and model number in the inventory. So there are little things that can tweak an inventory that are going to make a negotiation, adjudication so much easier when it comes to the end of the tenancy for any damage. Then we're talking about age quality. We might be looking at the lifespan. So what is the general lifespan of something? Something like a sink in a bathroom or a toilet is going to have a longer lifespan than the decoration. So very much case by case basis. But when it comes to decor or carpets, we start at a five year lifespan. And that is because the evidence, if it's good enough, can then extend that. But actually, we are talking about rental properties I do, from my extensive experience, know the quality of what landlords do put into their properties. And unless they've got proof that it's a very high spec, we will look at the average cost of things and the average lifespan of something. So everything is movable depending on what we have in front of us. It does sound like it may be easy, you know, if a landlord, it may it must be easier to see what fair wear and tear is from a brand new property and a tenant moves in. I suppose mm. that any other scenario, it's going to have to be, well, as you say, taken by case by case basis and it, it perhaps won't be as clear cut. It does make no, it quite we, an interesting field to work in, I'd have thought. <laughs> yeah, I think I think to add to that as well, we're also looking at the condition at the start. So how good is that inventory? How good is the detail? How good is the photograph? You know, it, something might be five years old already, but actually if it was in really good condition a year ago, you've already extended the lifespan. So, you know, that can that can lend itself very well. And then, of course, how long is the tenancy? Because even if it was new when the tenant moved in, the tenant been there six months, a year, that is still an element of wear and tear. So it's not, you cannot expect to receive a new, you know, the full cost of 
putting something back again. That sounds a sensible way of, of looking at it. Well, perhaps on this topic, I think that let, let's try and take a look at a couple of scenarios and see, you know, uh, how, how we might how we might address these. Looking at carpet replacement uh, as an example. So let's say that the tenant uh, says that the carpets, they weren't new when they moved in. There were perhaps some stains with a little bit of fraying around the edges, for example. Um, they asked the landlord if the carpet could be replaced after the five years of living in the property. And they were looking a bit untidy, you know, it's uh, because of their age that they said. But the landlord didn't want to do this and only agreed to replace the carpet in, in one room in the, in the lounge, for example. And let's say that the tenant dropped an iron on it. So there is a little bit of a uh, there's a bit of a mark there. If the agent then comes back and says, well, the carpet has had a few marks and stains at the end of the tenancy and therefore it can't be used any further. The lounge carpet, in spe specifically the one area that the landlord um, talked about uh, replacing, that was replaced two years prior, not the five years that the tenant was talking about. Um, and now it has that burn mark on it. So what do we think that the tenant might be entitled to in this instances versus the landlord? So if, if we think about the criteria we just spoke about, we'd be talking about a five-year average lifespan on a carpet, but you say that the carpet's been there two years, yeah? Yeah, so, so in a particular area, so it's uh, five years in some of the other rooms, but two years in this in this lounge where, where uh, the landlord said he will replace it. So this this is a this is a really good example of how we have to split down the claim because we'd have to look at the carpet that's five years and say actually what was that like when the tenant moved in if it was in excellent condition then we might be looking at making an award to the landlord but if it wasn't and it's just continued with its natural wear due to the tenant living in the property they may be entitled to nothing where the landlord would be entitled to something is a carpet that's only 2 years old and subsequently damaged. So there are two ways of looking at that. One is, has the damage reduced the lifespan even more? Or is the damage bang in the middle of the carpet, which means that there's not much else you can do other than replace it at this stage? Common damage to carpet will be iron burns, hair straightener burns, things like that. But it's amazing how sometimes they're very near the edge and they're not so severe. So it will depend on the severity as well as the position where, you know, how something is awarded. A lot okay. of factors to think about. Yeah, well, I think that looking at these couple of scenarios, I think that's the thing to take away. It's, it is to consider all of the different factors that should be considered in this situation just to ensure that a fair result comes, comes out of it, I suppose, for everybody. Um, it's never going to be cut and dried. And not everyone's going to like the decisions we make, but they are, we mm. do exactly Exactly. As you say, we're looking to be reasonable. Let, let's take a look at just one more scenario, perhaps, um, because I think that the idea of damp and mould uh, in, in different mm -hmm. areas of rental property, I'm sure that that one must crop up quite a bit. So let's say that the tenant, they say that there was mould in the bathroom when they moved in. Um, mm. The extractor fan didn't work, so it seemed to get worse uh, over their time in, in this property. You know, so a bit of mould started to show up in, in the bedroom as well. And it was reported, but the but the agent didn't didn't come and do anything, despite the fact they tried to air the property and so on. The tenant did, but but the agent didn't come around to do anything. But then, if the agent in this situation said that they obviously were aware that there was that bit of mold initially in the bathroom, uh, it did get worse. Um, but they'd like a bit of contribution towards the the repainting, um, just to to uh, to sort this situation. 
they don't have the record of the tenant reporting the mold in the bedroom so it and by the move out date it was too late to actually do anything about it to, to help solve the problem at the beginning um, and uh, the decorator when they came to have a look at it they said that it was due to there not being enough ventilation despite the fact the tenant said that they had ventilated the room in this uh, overview of a scenario okay. how, how would okay. you approach this so again you've got two areas because you've got the bathroom and you've got a bedroom uh, you've got two different scenarios for each of those rooms then. So you've got the tenants saying they did ventilate the property, but no evidence that they've reported it or ventilated it in the bedroom. So it sounds to me like they're definitely responsible for for work to the decor in the bedroom. But again, you've got to look at what was it like at the start? What element of wear and tear needs to be applied? And what is reasonable in the circumstances? Very often landlords do um take into account an element of wear and tear but maybe it's just not quite enough sometimes they always think decor should last 10 years or or longer and actually just need to remember that maybe the a tenant doesn't look at it in the same way as if it is their own property or maybe they do but actually if they didn't report it that the you can it, it's about weighing it up so actually where which which element is more persuasive um, has the problem got worse because the tenant didn't report it? You know, all these different little things we have. With the bathroom, we would be looking at what ventilation was available. The extractor fan, was there one? Was it working? So I think in this scenario, if, if the extractor fan wasn't working, uh, for, for example, I think that if there was a bit of mould at the beginning, but, uh, but uh, the, the extractor fan wasn't working. No, you see, and then that that would be the the landlord's responsibility um, and or his agent to fix it, to sort it out. Um, So actually, that's that may be, you know, between the agent and the landlord who was responsible for letting who know what to do and when to do it and not letting it go the whole of the tenancy. But then I'd be looking and saying, well, actually, are there any midterm inspection reports? You know, so we become we become a bit bit like detectives very inquisitorial Mm. so the evidence is key no as you say it's interesting sort of you saying that you have to become detectives it is an interesting way to of looking at it especially as you say looking at all of the different elements including the midterm inspection reports and things like that where there are opportunities where the landlord or agent should have caught it regardless and you know nipped it in the bud before it became worse so no it's uh, interesting to to hear that perspective Um, so one one more um it's less of a scenario this one it is a bit more of just a situation so uh, what, what about if if a tenant wanted to wanted to install something such as I'm going to use the example of broadband I'd hope that most properties nowadays they'd perhaps already have that installed but um, for, for argument's sake if, if it wasn't you know what would be their obligations versus the the landlord or or agent in that situation is a tenant allowed to just install broadband or is it something that would have to be discussed noted in the in the inventory um you know if if the tenant afterwards didn't wish to have it installed you know um would who would have to perhaps pay for um for the wiring to be taken up things like that is uh, do would you have any advice in that situation i think if if a tenant wants to make i agree with you i think most most properties these days definitely do have broadband and if they don't the landlord should be considering it seriously because it does lend itself to letting your property out um 
But with any alteration or any wish to add something or take away something from a property, you need you do need to ask the landlord for permission. It is it is their property and they have the right to decline certain things. Um, uh, and if they agree, they have got every right to make it conditional that you return it to how it was. So if you are going to install broadband and the landlord says, well, you have to remove it when you leave, then that's what you have to do. Um, landlords sometimes um, don't insist because they realise that actually it might be an improvement to the property and that's fine. I, I dare say we don't see those. They're part of the 98% of end of tenancy um, deposit uh, returns to the tenant. Um, but I think landlords just need to, landlords and agents need to be aware that if they do give permission without a condition to return it, that the tenant will not have to return it to that original state. So it's again just making sure it's explicit as to as to what the conditions are around this. Um, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But they do also have the right to decline. Yeah, you know, some respect, some requests are quite unreasonable sometimes. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose you do. You know, tenants do have to remember that it is the landlord's property at the end of the day. It is the tenant's home for that interim period, perhaps, but it is also the landlord's property. So it's finding that balance, I suppose, in all the yeah. situations. Yes. Um, well, let's let's um, let's move on to a point which I think is obviously it's very relevant always relevant I think always one of those questions but the question of pets and how those fit into this scenario mm -hmm. um, yes. I mean what what are your views on this um, I, I suppose at large in terms of how it fits in with deposits and, and where this may be going um, under the Tenant Fees Act and the Renters Reform Bill uh, yeah a bit of an open question but what, what are you what are your thoughts about where this is heading? I have a lot of thoughts on it and it's a particular interest in man because I love dogs and I've had two dogs in my life and I wouldn't have been without them for the world. But um, obviously landlords have a choice on whether to accept pets for now. Um, I think everybody in the industry is aware that the government's model tenancy agreement um, allows for pets by default and you have to opt out um, of that clause in their um, if you use their tenancy agreement. It, it's interesting that in 2019, the RSPCA estimated that only 7% of landlords advertised their properties as pet-friendly. But in 2020, AXA estimated that 17 million households in the UK, that's not just rental properties, own pets. And the age 16 to 34 age bracket are the main drivers for having pets. And they're more and more increasingly likely to be unable to get out of the rental market. So that, that market is only going to increase. Following the pandemic, um, one in five people put keeping a pet in their top three priorities for renting a property. So that doesn't fit in with the amount of landlords advertising properties as pet friendly. Um, and post-pandemic, there was a 120% increase in the demand for pet-friendly properties. So I think I think on the basis of what I just said, I don't know if I can encourage landlords to really consider it because in terms of the fact that we only see less than 2% of all protected deposit come to adjudication, there is such a small minority of cases that really deals with pet damage. It is very, very unusual. 
Um, I would say we get more pest damage, which has nothing to do with pets, you know, so rats, mice, bed bugs, you know, any other kind of pest, but they're not necessarily pet related. So, yeah, it's really worth agents and, and landlords considering a request for a pet. In terms of the the way that they're planning on perhaps changing this in the future um, under mm, the renters' mm. reform bill, how do you think that that could work? I mean, obviously, it is only speculation, I suppose, at this point. Um, we we don't really have uh, the the government hasn't released the specifics yet as to how they plan to make this a permitted payment under the Tenant Fees Act. But how do how do you think that this could potentially work and the impact it may have on deposits if if you feel that it will? Well, it will be interesting to see if they make it a permitted fee, because I think that will reassure landlords when they accept a pet in their properties. Again, from my experience of being out there talking to many agents and landlords, the majority of pet owners are very responsible. And actually, they are tend to be the people that stay in those properties longer and pay all their rent on time, because they're very grateful for being allowed to have that pet. So. I think I think it can be a win-win. I'm not saying every scenario is going to be perfect, but I think there is a, there's an increasing demand that needs to be met, and I don't think it should frighten landlords. That makes sense, as you say. The demand is there, and if if the tenant is is more likely to perhaps stay in the property for longer, at the end of the day, that's that's almost the best scenario, best case scenario for a landlord if if they have long term good tenants that that do pay their rent on time, <laughs> and that makes yeah. uh, good business sense to me. I think it will also be interesting to see because obviously this will all tie in with something we're not talking about today, which is the abolition of Section Twenty One, yeah. and maybe going down the you know no fixed end date for a tenancy. You've then got good tenants, may stay longer. You may just need to refurb the property every five to seven years and and just let your tenants stay. You're right. I mean, you can't really take it completely in its own silo, the the one change for, for pets. It's uh, obviously coming under a raft of changes that are going to be made. But yeah, as you say, not, not the topic for today, but certainly an no. interesting conversation. Well, I think that one of the things that is very, very um, current in the news and a hot topic at the moment is obviously the cost of living crisis. And I think that that yes. does very much factor into to what we are discussing today. Deposits themselves are kind of that uh, payment, that upfront payment that uh, the tenants have to give at the beginning of a tenancy. Um, and, it, you know, if if there are disputes at the end, then it may, it may happen that they lose some of that deposit. Mm. What kinds of advice uh, would you have for, for agents and landlords to help tenants or, or just purely directly for, for agents and landlords during the cost of living crisis in relation to deposits? Um, well, I, I think I think both apply, actually. I think we can educate the tenants. I think agents and landlords can help their tenants and not just leave them to it. And I'd hate to think that they're not doing that because I think there's a lot of good advice out there on how to minimise their bills, particularly. Um, but th- Landlords also need to manage their own expectations and think about there are tenancy agreements out there, for example, that include the bills up to a point. Well, actually, if that point is now so far below what the extra will be charged to the tenant, that tenant is going to be in for a big surprise. So maybe landlords and agents need to rethink whether they should or shouldn't be included in the next tenancies. There are lots of uh, ways for landlords to minimise the cost of 
energy bills for tenants. Um, lots of minor improvements, not necessarily big costs. Uh, smart meters being one of them, so that tenants can see exactly what they're using. They're not they're not a big thing to put into your properties. Heat efficiency, again, good things. Encourage your tenants to have a clothes horse for drying clothes and not using the radiators, which stop the heat going into the room, which means they need to keep the radiators on for longer. Don't push furniture up against the... I mean, there's a raft of advice out there. All I'm saying is there there is a lot that agents and landlords can help their tenants with, especially if they know their tenants are struggling. We have some advice on our website, actually, and it only went up last month. Otherwise, if it had been there for a long time, I wouldn't mention it. But it literally has gone up last month. So I have put a lot of effort into writing the best things that I could find out there as as um, helpful hints and useful guides for both landlords and tenants. So feel free to look on the My Deposits website and the HF Knowledge Web uh, Centre for for guidance on on that but it includes things like using the washing machine at night rather than during the day and only using the lights you need when where where and when you need them all these things will save you pennies but will add up to pounds no you can definitely add those links to the to the show notes to accompany the podcast so uh, so everybody will be able to to go on and find those um, oh, and I, I i suspect that a lot of or, or there are probably many things that landlords and agents can do which kind of in creating these efficiencies there's probably a good chance that the the I don't know for example the boiler um, if you if you work on advising tenants in the best way as to how to make those run most efficiently I, I would have thought that there would probably be cost benefits as well for the landlord for the agent in terms of you know just making sure that things don't go awry during the winter when these things are being used a little bit more um, and then obviously you know that having the knock-on effect of who who pays for that if it goes wrong um, would, would I be correct in saying that is it kind of something which it is kind of this beneficial beneficial space where really where where agents and landlords can make these updates um, to help all parties yes I mean the landlord obviously wants to safeguard their property as well so actually not just I mean we all know that gas safety certificate is a legal requirement but actually a boiler service isn't but why not have your boiler service to make sure it's working to its best efficiency because that way it will last as long as it you know the lifespan is longer potentially and the tenant is going to benefit from it working at its most efficiency when it comes to paying their bills. So there's, yeah, there's so many little things that don't cost a lot that can help. I think maintaining your relationship with your tenant right from the beginning, we talked about, you know, I talk about negotiation, talked about managing responsibilities, but just maintaining a good relationship with your tenant by helping them, listening to them, being available for them, not 24-7 and not interrupting their life, you know, their quiet enjoyment of your property too often. But just maintaining that good relationship is and encouraging them to report any defects can prevent, you know, things going wrong, costing more money right the way through. No, that certainly it brings it back to those couple of scenarios, I suppose, where yeah, just making making the landlord and agent aware if there's a problem, um, it's much better to get these things sorted, I suppose. And if those conversations are had, um, it may not reach the dispute stage, um, which is sort of better better for everybody, as, as you said at the beginning. Absolutely. 
and perhaps just to sort of tie things together a little bit and just make sure that we haven't missed anything that, that you think is particularly important for, for our, you know, our audience, our listeners out there to know. What would you say are the top things that trip agents and landlords up in terms of their perhaps basic understanding of deposits and disputes? Is there anything that you could pick out there? Um, yes, and we've we've covered one of them, which is fair wear and tear. So I think landlords just need to remind themselves that they have signed up to the fact and it is a it is a a long understood principle you cannot charge the tenant for putting something back into a better position than it was yeah so you must consider wear and tear and it has to be reasonable what you're considering as well the other thing with cleaning cleaning itself of a property doesn't fair wear and tear doesn't apply to cleaning so actually, tenants then need to understand and you need to actually educate your tenants to say, if the if you've been living in the property for six years and it was given to you cleaned to a professional standard, it needs to be returned to clean to a professional standard. However, if it wasn't, the tenant is only responsible for returning it clean to the same standard. And landlords need to understand they can't then have a professional clean and charge the tenant the whole amount. So it's a question of degree and balance and understanding. And then, you know, even less disputes. Which is, as we said already, (laughs) the the (laughs) ideal situation. Less disputes is is good for everybody. (laughs) I'm happy with less than 1%, never mind 2%. Perfect. Well, um, thank you, Susie, for for uh, for our conversation today. It's it's been very interesting, and I think that um, you you have provided a lot of clarity on perhaps some of those aspects that the agents and landlords and tenants um, don't understand, or or it perhaps sometimes causes some confusion. So so thank you very much for for joining me. Thank you, Susie.